0: Welcome to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. This is Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with Aaron Mary on why the journey of a CIO is not formulaic. Aaron Mary is the Chief Information Officer for the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School and UT Health Austin. Aaron brings more than a decade of healthcare experience, driving growth and innovation, leading both provider and commercial healthcare enterprises, and providing thought leadership and close collaboration with state and federal representatives. As CIO, Aaron is passionate about humanizing technology by collaborating with clinicians, technology partners, and business champions to truly transform healthcare delivery for consumers, patients, and providers. In 2018, Aaron was congressionally appointed by Senator Chuck Schumer to the Health and Human Services Federal Health IT Advisory Committee, also known as HITAC, established under the 21st Century Cures Act. Previously, Aaron was federally appointed by HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell to serve on the HHS Health IT Policy Committee established under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. Aaron is the prior chair of the HIMSS National Public Policy Committee and serves as an expert advisor to the United States Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, and to other congressional panels engaged in numerous health IT policy topics. Good morning, Aaron. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I appreciate that.
0: So you've got a lot of exciting things to share with us. And why I'm so happy to have you as a guest on our show is that you have taken a very non-traditional path that honestly most people are envious of when they hear all the amazing things that you've done. And we'll cover all of them, but let's start with the new role you have just accepted.
1: That's correct. Yeah, I um, am now the chief information officer for uh, the University of Texas at Austin, uh, Dell Medical School, and UT Health Austin.
0: Tell us about how you have just jumped into this new opportunity, and and we know you had, you know, you had a, you were dabbling in uh, some new endeavors and had a lot of offers on the table. How did you decide to make this decision?
1: Yeah, I can tell you that for anybody that's contemplating a change or evaluating multiple options, it's number one, important to listen to your heart. You've got to ask yourself, what is it you wish to contribute back to the industry, to a community, and more importantly, to the population of patients that you wish to serve? There are numerous phenomenal organizations out there that are doing just heroic work but there's ones that truly you align with perfectly and there's some that you know maybe it's 80% so you've got to really take your time evaluate look at everything talk to folks almost interview the organizations as if they're as they interview you and at the end of the day for me um you know Dell Medical School uh UT Austin I'm a Longhorn by background You know, it's also Texas, where I lived for over 20 years, and really I was a CIO and CTO in the Dallas area for a long time. So there's familiarity there and family in Texas. So there were so many personal checkboxes as well as professional. And at the end of the day, if you listen to your inner voice, you'll come out with the right solution.
0: So you're in an area that is just hot for tech right now, and you think about you're in a university system, you've got healthcare to layer on top of that, do you believe that with the level of passion that you've expressed you have around humanizing technology and collaborating with clinicians, how do you see being able to pull talent from right within your own walls in this new role?
1: Yeah, so number one, um, you know, it is such a blessing that the University of Texas is one of the top academic institutions around the world. And so the caliber of student that's actually at the facility and the technical depth is right there at your fingertips. Number two, it's Austin, Texas, which is becoming quickly the new Silicon Valley of startups, of healthcare, of health tech. Uh, In fact, there's a healthcare hackathon this coming up week in Austin, bringing some of the brightest minds from around the world there um, with South by Southwest and all these other uh, events that are going on in Austin, you know, coupled with a very strong local chapter in Austin of HIMSS, that all of these things culminate in an opportunity to be able to pull that talent into the hospital system, into the medical school, and furthermore, to benefit patient care. Um, what I appreciated the most about Dell Medical School under the guidance of uh, Dr. Clay Johnston is the fact that it's data-driven. Everything there is evidence-based, and therefore the clinicians are, are truly leveraging real-time data to evaluate and make clinical care decisions right then and there. So as a patient, you're not kind of winging it, and let's let's probe you and explore and do some tests and figure this out. It's based on data and based on everything from social demographics to your actual history and physical to everything else.
0: So you are heavily involved in governmental activities as it relates to public policy. How do you see being able to pull in your advocacy into some of these new initiatives that are also becoming mainstream within our health system?
1: Great question. And I'm glad you said that. So, number one, first of all, happy National Health IT Week uh, as we wrap that up this week. Um, Just this week, in fact, I was in Washington, D.C., meeting with lawmakers, speaking on various initiatives that are going on that that HIMSS is championing, that the local HIMSS is championing, and furthermore, that the University of Texas Dell Medical School and UT Health Austin are championing. And what it was is that we started to see this nexus of these these concepts and these issues that are going on within healthcare around blockchain, uh, around really looking at how we use AI and machine learning and all these different techniques, and where does the legislative arm come into play? Does, does the legislative arm need to worry about how to legislate blockchain? That was literally a question I got posed to by numerous legislators. So as we as we evaluate these things on a local level at the hospital system and trying to benefit patient care, so too are the legislators trying to make sure that we're not encumbered by any unintentional barriers to tech. So at my approach to being able to participate back in government relations is how can I help benefit the industry with the knowledge locally that we have seen the challenges, the successes, and really educating our lawmakers on being able to push the ball forward. That coupled together is, is I believe, a major d- dynamic of the role of the chief information officer, which is to give back and teach and become that Sherpa for everybody, including our legislators.
0: I love that you were just in Washington, and I, uh, two weeks ago, was able to attend the Chime Public Policy Forum. It was the first summit that they had. And th- there were the four primary topics. There was interoperability, opioid epidemic, telehealth, and cybersecurity. And I love that you're also talking about blockchain. When we think about all of these technologies coming together, when you think about being in the setting you're going to be into with uh, a university and a medical center, how do you see interoperability being able to drive some of these data and analytics and getting information back to the patient. Because I love that we talk about the forward technologies like blockchain. Simple fact of the matter is a lot of patients still leave our care settings with paper uh, as a supplement to, to their patient portal. So tell me about that dynamic with where you're headed.
1: Uh, great question. and And you're right on the money with interoperability. I think people today are using interoperability as sort of that all-encompassing word that Touches upon multiple dimensions, just like the four items that you brought up. Um, you know, I'm gonna to speak towards something that Dr. Don Rucker, who is the uh, ONC uh, chief, and what he was saying as as we were meeting with him and speaking with him and the Office National Coordinator team was that interoperability really means much more than just cybersecurity and all these other dynamics. It really is the ability for information to be useful. I mean data without any without any actionability around it is Worthless. Nobody cares that Aaron had a cappuccino at 10 a.m. this morning for breakfast. What they do care about is that his blood pressure probably went up by 20 points because of the caffeine. So, how do we derive and make sure that the data that we're trying to make interoperable is actually actionable? So, as you look at things like you said, cybersecurity, the opioid issue, all these dynamics, where is the data actually actionable? and useful, and trustworthy. I've been using a word around the legislators and also at Dell Medical School around accountability. How do we make the data accountable to both the patient, the health system, and ultimately to society? Because as we look at this sea of data, maybe what's useful there is maybe half of it, right? And I'm probably being generous with that. But we've gotta make sure that we can derive true value quickly easily and without issue to the clinician so they can provide care back to the patient. So at the end of the day, what what I would say is that take a step back look at what we're actually trying to solve here let's not delve too much into oh there's information blocking this health system is not playing nice with this other health system sure all those things exist absolutely which will be worked through over time but how do we actually take the time to solve the true problem which is actually making sure the data is actionable
0: when you talk about accountability of the data I'd love to pivot a bit to the accountability of the patient. And I say this because I'm, we, we are all patients. I think that's the joy of being technologists in, in a medical setting is that we get to be solutioning the things that are also applying to us. So we talk about the ability for us to pull data sets from social behaviors, and we know that whether it's any of our social activities, Google, Amazon, Facebook, you name it, there are the opportunities to pull that information in. I wonder, though, how honest patients may be in sharing some of their social behaviors and data, knowing that it can drive uh, either changes or, hey, you did have a a couple too many drinks or, hey, you did eat French fries with that sandwich instead of a salad. Like When we think about the accountability role of the patient, how do you influence that behavioral change either with the data or as a partner in care?
1: Great question. Um, Recently, I'm sure you saw the news release that a major Uh, health insurer, and this is uh, for life insurance, is requiring that some of their uh, high-issue customers start wearing Fitbits and start measuring their their patient-generated health data and providing that back to be able to have life insurance coverage. So I think you're seeing the consumer industry step up to the plate and say, hey, you know what, patient, we can't force you to be honest all the time. And we know that you're going to be embarrassed that, yeah, maybe you had a couple of extra two drinks that you shouldn't have had uh, due to other complicating issues. But we're also going to hold you accountable. It's that whole trust but verify uh, methodology. So I think it's going to be a combination of the forces from people like insurance agencies and life insurance agencies and others, a combination of the payers, a combination of now you have companies like Apple stepping up to the plate, giving new tools to the consumer audience, and then the health system saying, you know what, I know historically we didn't want to look at the patient-generated health data, but because so many other important dimensions are looking at it, now we too as well. And that's why you're seeing a number of health systems join on now to the Apple initiative to be able to share medical records via Apple. So you're seeing this confluence of multiple players start enforcing that the patient needs to step up to the plate and take accountability for his or her own health. You know, nobody questions when you spend all of your money in your checking account and suddenly you can't buy gas. You did that. That was an action you as a consumer did. You spent all of the money in your checking account. Why, too, can't we say the same accountability exists if, hey, guess what? You're not managing your blood pressure, and now you have other complications because of that. That element has to be there. And that, I believe, is where we are maturing to as an industry.
0: What I love, I think, about, um, you know, the reward that you get from achieving certain goals and things like even this morning I stopped and got my my Starbucks on the way in I'm like oh I have enough stars to almost get a free drink you know it's like these things <laughs> where you get excited about collecting these points towards towards uh, you know gifts from from your areas that you spend time and money in and i realized that even in healthcare, if you are getting rewarded for X amount of steps or activities or et cetera, um, a lot of programs do that with their, with their employees. But to do that even with your insurance provider, imagine the power behind some of that paired even with your, your healthcare setting. There is so much we can do from the consumerism aspect of driving accountability in healthcare. It's fantastic when you see places like where you are headed that are using the data for that type of information. You can really create an engaged patient population.
1: I would agree with you. And I further would look to the fact that the the most rapidly growing segment of consumer audience is the millennial generation that grew up, honestly, with gamification, that game theory, competitive edge. Hey, I want to have more points than Sarah has so that Aaron can win the plush toy at the fair that is driven into the psyche of the millennial generation, which, quite frankly, is growing up and becoming the complex comorbidity generation that's now entering into the uh, health system as a consumer in mass so as we as this confluence of technologies occurs and we start pushing to your point reward systems gamification all these items the millennial generations primed and ready to go in fact i would argue they expect that they expect to be able to hook up and say hey guess what i have ten thousand points from doing all these steps i met my step count all week long you know what i want the reward i want the gold sticker that's what I expect because that's what I've, I've known my entire life. So we as health providers must embrace that society is changing. The way we deliver care is changing, not just because of technology, but because the, the patient is, is more mature and more advanced, technologically speaking, in their expectations. And if you don't align with that, guess what? They'll do what they do with Yelp. They'll do what they do with Google reviews. They'll go somewhere else because that is the expectation of the consumer.
0: So if you had a crystal ball and you said, wow, we have educated our patient populations so well that it's no longer CHF and COPD and diabetes that are our primary comorbidities, it's now, due to wellness and accountability, we have a slew of orthopedic issues or other dynamics that occur from you know, just the you, the use of our bodies, the exercise, the strive to be these sort of marathon-like uh, athletes in our lives, do we create a whole new set of issues and are we aware of it ahead of enough, we're aware of it ahead of enough of time that we can do something about that? So we're promoting wellness but also keeping people healthier in that journey.
1: Great question. You know, I think um, you asked if I have a crystal ball and what's interesting is, you know, I would love to say yes, but unfortunately, I don't think we know because there are so many rapidly changing dynamics of the health consumer that we probably don't even realize what's coming down the pipe three to five years is going to change things. Is virtual reality and augmented reality going to simply change the way we interact? Nobody, I really think besides Steve Jobs, could have really envisioned what the iPhone would revolutionize in terms of bringing consumer tech to your fingertips, 24-7, 365, which suddenly led to this rapid issue of people not being able to fall asleep because their circadian rhythms are thrown off at night by staring at the you know bright, bright, bright light before going to bed. So how do you start assessing and realizing what is net new tech going to impact? What I will say is this, though if we don't stay in tune with what the consumer is experiencing we will rapidly be outpaced and outgunned by by the consumer audience providers like in China or in EMEA that are on the ball i'll tell you that once upon a time you would look at folks like china like apac like all these regions of the world and go ah they're third rate they don't know what they're doing but now you have some of the most advanced technologies coming out of China, Japan, Korea, Dubai, all these wonderful, amazing things that you can do, people go there. In fact, I was just reading an article that in uh, a large mall in Dubai, they have these health pods you literally walk into and something out of Star Trek scans you, can give you your vitals and can tell you, hey, you know what? You're susceptible to a cold because it looks like uh, you are producing uh, too much oxygen or too much of these different dynamics. It'll give you a readout right then and there, and you just walk in and walk out. Better than going to a care now or whatever clinic, you know, up the street from you. It's that type of tech that the consumer expects. We have to get there. So, no, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can simply tell you this, that change is coming, change is rapid, and if we don't change, we'll be outgunned.
0: So one of the most exciting things about speaking with you, and, and I've had the, the joy of being able to do that in multiple settings, which is why I'd love to have you go on the show, is you've gone from multiple settings. You've been a CIO in healthcare. You've been on the provider partner side. You've gone you know, back into now uh, a university medical center. Tell me about the craziness of, of going these different routes and paths and how it has actually led to you having this deep knowledge and understanding that many others may be uh, nervous to take.
1: Great question. Um, And I appreciate, I really do appreciate that question. One of the things about me, and and maybe this is just a personality quirk, is that I am insatiably curious. I love to ask questions. I love to find out why. And when something, or I perceive that something can be made better or can be fixed or tweaked or whatever else, I want to go try and do it. I want to help people. And I think that's why I became a CIO in the first place is because I am passionately curious. I do want to uncover what's going on. And so with that curiosity led me down the path of investigating what does it mean to be a hospital CIO of an adult care facility? What about being a CTO of a pediatric facility? What about going as a CIO of a global publicly traded healthcare commercial company? Now, as you said, what about an academic institution? So for me, it's these questions and dynamics of where can, just like I was saying the very first question you asked me, where can I best apply my talents, my experience, my energy and my passion towards and really affect change? I believe that you know everybody in healthcare joined healthcare for the reasons of wanting to help people, whether you're a true clinician, whether you're on the business side, Or whether you are a patient coming in and helping to give feedback that's constructive, that helps the health system, help 20 other patients in a much better constructive way. You're in it because you want things to get better. So why not provide the ability to look at these different dimensions and try it out? A lot of people are afraid of change, and that's okay. It's a beautiful thing to be at a place for some time and really explore and really get in there. But for those of you that are curious or in my case passionately and maybe to use your to use your word a little crazy curious, I believe that the best way to satisfy that curiosity is with simply going for it. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You're going to roll uh, a hard eight at some point and you're going to crap out at some point. But at the end of the day, if you keep rolling the dice, you're going to hit jackpot. <laughs>
0: I love that you said curiosity is a key component of that. Just uh, yesterday, no, on the 11th of this month, Forbes put out an article that said, this single trait will make your business competitive. And it's about hiring members who challenge the status quo and who are curious and have like odd hobbies and, and have different things they do outside of the workplace. As you think about both inheriting and building your new team, how will you use some of those components to build that workforce that is poised to be able to deliver all the things that we've been talking about?
1: Great question. I And I firmly agree with that uh, article that curiosity is the number one trait. And number two, I believe, is also courage. You have to have courage of conviction. You have to say, look, it's okay to fail fast. It's okay to you know blow it on a gamble that hey this tech didn't work out the way we wanted to but it's okay pick yourself up brush yourself off and keep going so as I look at the team that I'm inheriting and I'm sure as the team grows we'll have new bodies join us and whatnot it's important to have those dynamics do you have courage are you curious and then lastly are you committed are you all in because I can teach you any tech if you have the passion anything can be taught but do you have the courage of conviction? Do you have the insatiable desire to ask why? And that's another attractive point of why I went and, and selected Dell Medical Schools, because that's what they're built on, is let's figure out how to do this better. Let's not reinvent the wheel. I do want to pull in a, an interesting topic that you, you did touch upon briefly, which is change. Change management is a tough thing in healthcare because healthcare has been delivered the same way for so many darn years. But there's this rapidly approaching, uh, I'll call it tsunami of change, occurring to the health systems that they are struggling. You see the articles every single day in Becker's or in Modern Healthcare of so-and-so hospitals having to close its doors or merging with another health system because they can't make their margins work or whatever else. Or Moody's is downgrading their credit rating. And that's because they're not changing rapidly enough. And that's what has to ultimately change. It's not just the people element, which I would argue is number one. Number two is the attitude of its leadership team has to change. And you know, I've, I'm sure as you have, I've talked to numerous peers who po- try to pull their hair out going, gosh, why can't I move this cruise ship? Why can't I change this? And that's because it has to be all in. And so back to that point is, are you curious? Are you all in, and do you have courage or conviction?
0: So, so many of our peers, as you well know, are faced with these consolidations, these mergers, these acquisitions. And there are there are people out there that you never thought would be looking for a new opportunity that have either been forced into it or had something happen maybe by surprise. And I feel like you and I have been lucky in our careers and that we've usually actively sought the new thing that people were like, are you guys crazy? And yet we went after it because we're like, Hey, why not? What do you have to lose? You can always, you can always apply your skills, et cetera. But let's be honest. I mean, people call us and ask for advice. Like, how do I make the career switch? What am I supposed to do if this happens? What advice would you give to listeners and to someone looking to either make a change or who's worried about being acquired or being merged, as I call it, um, what advice do you have for people to be consistently prepared either for what's next that could be a surprise or that's planned so that they're ready for what's going to happen?
1: Great question. What was told to me a long time ago as a a very green uh, technician or tech technologist in the workforce was you have to have a network of mentors you can lean on. And I will tell you that even in its most recent change, I was speaking with my mentors. And these are people that are both peers as well as people that are not peers. I have a very close friend of mine who is a hospital president of a very large health system uh, out of Florida. And I reached out to him and said, hey, am I nuts? This is how I am evaluating this. This is what I'm reading the tea leaves of. Tell me your perspective as a CEO. What do you think? And, of course, I reached out to some fellow CIOs. Uh, I reached out to you, Sarah, and said, hey, I would love your perspective on things. You've got to have that network. So I would say for anybody that, number one, is contemplating or concerned or worried, reach out to your network. Reach into hymns. Reach into Chime. Reach into folks. Or, hey, ping me. I'm happy to help and and be a voice of, of a third party and say, what do I think? Once you have these different data points, these different data elements, you begin to get a much clearer picture of what is really going on. A lot of times, I believe the the chief information officer can also be the chief worry officer. So you may be unintentionally overanalyzing things, and the tea leaves really don't say that. And it takes people you can lean on that either call you crazy or agree with you for you to be able to see that. So you've got to reach into your network, find those mentors, and then again, have some courage. Because if things are reading that change is coming, you have a chance to act before change happens to you. And so if you know if you know a wave is coming to hit you and you see it and you can almost smell it, but yet you don't move and the wave hits you, well, who's to fault?
0: So when you got to the point where you said, Hey, I'm I'm at my final decision point on on what I'm gonna do next. How much of that decision came down to trusting your intuition?
1: I would say 60% of it. 60% of it was my intuition. 40% of it was the sanity check I did on my intuition with, again, my mentors, my friends, my family, all of that. But 60% of it was my spidey sense saying, Aaron, this is the way to go. um, And here's the reason not to go on these other items.
0: I love that perspective people always ask me how do you know when to trust your intuition I'm like when you've been around for, for a while and you start to think about you know intuitively what the right thing to do is I always tell people do that final gut check and make sure that it makes sense so you touched on education from mentors, education from from Hymns and Chime, which is why we all do you know what we do in terms of learning. What other things do you do to stay informed and aware and involved? And where do you recommend with where things are headed today that people should get more involved and have greater awareness?
1: Great question. So number one, as I said a little earlier in this podcast— Get involved with your local, your state, and your federal government. There are so many pending bills around health care and legislating health care that if your real-world experiences are not transferred to those lawmakers, bills will be passed that impact your day-to-day. So number one, get involved. Join HIMSS in its quest to educating state lawmakers. Be part of the policy committee of HIMSS at a national and a local level. Join us for National Health IT Week. Do these things that help move the ball forward. So that's number one. Number two, get involved outside of the healthcare IT circles. You know, there are a number of things around Gartner or Class or other organizations that do a really good job of bringing all sorts of folks together um, and talking about things. You know, w- one of the the really good summits that I've been to um, is around the Gartner summit that's held annually and the CIO summit in Orlando, because it brought together Together, CIOs from every industry, and one of the coolest success stories I had was when I was the chief technology officer at Children's Dallas, I met with this uh, CIO from the city of Dallas, and my challenge was trying to outfit our ambulances with Wi-Fi uh, and cellular Wi-Fi so they could be able to access electronic medical record while they were transporting a patient, but I couldn't do it. Well, she had an experience where she was able to outfit all the city buses with cellular Wi-Fi and what the pros and cons were and had really solved this problem. So I borrowed some of the wins from her solution for the city buses for my ambulances. And voila, I had a success story. Had I not encountered and gone outside of my industry, you know, I wouldn't have been able to come upon that. So you have to be able to branch out beyond healthcare and become really this, this, this crucial nexus point of data and being able to look at all spectrums and all dimensions and all industries to go, okay, what can I apply, what can I learn, and what can't I?
0: I want to touch briefly on something you mentioned about having mentors. And as mentees and being aware and educated about what's happening around us, how important is it for the mentee to take that active role in creating a bidirectional educational opportunity and awareness structure for their mentor?
1: Great question. One of the important things, as as a mentee or, or really anybody that's leveraging a professional network of any sorts is to make sure it's a two way street. You can't just touch base with your mentors when you know you are, uh, as I call it, having an insane point and saying, "Hey, call me crazy on this idea." You have to proactively reach out and say, "Hey, mentor, how can I help you? What are you curious about?" And I'll speak again towards one of my mentors who's a, who's a hospital CEO. There's oftentimes he'll reach out to me and go, "Aaron." as a CEO, I'm not a technologist, but I'm here in X, Y, and Z. Is that crazy? And so you suddenly have a have a, uh, the tables flip. And now you're providing invaluable experience back as a technologist, back to your mentor. So that way, it's a two-way street. Everybody needs that shoulder to lean on. And so it's it's incumbent upon you to be active in those relationships and take the time. You can't just take, take, take. You have to give.
0: And you had mentioned being involved in, in advocacy, and currently I am the VP of Advocacy for the SoCal Hymns chapter, and we are planning on doing our state HIT visit in late April or early May, and, and you have volunteered to be a speaker if it works out with mm-hmm. your schedule.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I look forward to it. Um, I know that Texas will be having its uh, uh, Health IT Day end of January. I know that numerous states are, are also having it through the springtime, so I would absolutely look forward to coming to SoCal and speaking and helping you educate on what we're doing at a federal level. Um, I do serve on the Health IT Advisory Committee, as I was appointed by Congress to uh, earlier this year, so I can help ab- absolutely give education and guidance and feedback and take back uh, comments back to the federal level where those legislators are looking at health care issues.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you and to pull in a lot of powerful speakers to be able to continue to really push that advocacy. And one of the things I tell people regardless of your politics, you have to be informed and you have to go vote because you're right, things will happen to you. And let's be honest, I live in California. Our ballots are always huge and there's a ton of initiatives. And one of my favorite things to do, we think about mentors in your life. Well, my mom is almost 76 years old. And so she has a lot of time to read every single proposition. And that's how you literally on Sunday, we're going to be like going through every single one and talking about ideas and making sure that that gets done. How important is it when you talk about advocacy and just public policy and getting people involved? We talk about the millennials and uh, a lot of them don't vote. A lot of people just don't feel like they can make a difference. How do we start to turn that tide, whether it's healthcare or otherwise? How do you sit there and say, you know, you are responsible for your wellness in, in multiple areas and, and getting out there and having your voice heard is one of them how do we How do we advocate for just getting people out there and and realizing that the power lies in their ability to go out there and actually show up at the polls?
1: Great question. I believe there is a tangible aspect to legislation that sometimes people don't realize or is easily missed. Um, and you just simply don't understand how powerful your vote is. I'll give you a specific example. Um, wh- you know somebody who I feel is a, is almost a hero in healthcare i t. Uh, Pamela McNutt, I recall earlier on in my career when I worked for her at Methodist Health System in Dallas, her really giving a great debate with the Office of National Coordinator around the meaningful use stage one standards. And it was so eye-opening to watch her articulate and educate real world why at that point there was some modification needing to be done for those MU standards. And they took her feedback and made changes. And I said, wow, look at that. Here you have a phenomenal, well-knowledgeable CIO articulating and educating the federal government and now they're going to make change that helps everybody you know go the distance so as a hospital cio now i involve my staff i bring them to the table i i talk on you know the circuits on you know going to dc and i bring them with me so that they have the same eureka moment that i did when i was new in my career saying guess what I can affect change. I don't have to sit here and just take it that suddenly we're going to have you know 30 new quality measurements uh, coming out with this next new standard. I can participate and educate and give back. There's numerous things pending to bring your staff into. Or if you're wondering how to get into, feel free to reach out to me and I will help put you in touch with the right folks. That's the other role of a CIO, which is to be the teacher. You have to teach the next generation so that, to your point earlier, they understand that their voice and their vote counts.
0: Yeah, you talk about that trilogy out there. So Pam was just uh, one of the panelists at the at the chime policy summit. And what's fascinating about all the things that she's done. I remember you telling me that she's been one of your you know, you know, guiding lights in, in public policy and so many things you've done in your career. She's still helping to push and fight legacy medical device security which we think about all the amazing things happening in healthcare in our world and we're still having to make sure that our IV pumps are safe and that our vendors really aren't coming to the table sometimes so we're dealing with this we've got you know AI and and natural language processing and all these fantastic things happening. But at the end of the day, here we are trying to keep our IV pumps safe at the same time. So it's this never-ending uh, cycle of, of being aware and educated and doing the right thing. So I love that you're taking the approach with your team, that you are as much their mentor and guide as their educator as well.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and yes, it, it's going to take our collective voice to change things like medical devices or whatnot. And I encourage everybody, step up, speak out. Ask the questions. There are no dumb questions. I don't care who says what to you or what weird looks you get. Ask the questions. Make your voice heard and make a difference. That's your job. That's the role of technologist. Whether you're a CIO or you're the entry-level IT analyst, make your voice heard.
0: And I want to close with this uh, today on LinkedIn's daily rundown, which was one of my favorite you know, sound bites of information. The last idea was, it's nice to think of professional growth as comfortable and easygoing, but it really growth happens when you're stretched, when you're pushed, and when you're forced to overcome challenges, obstacles, and self-doubt. I love that.
1: I love that. that that's so true. And, uh, you know, I, I would be remiss and I would be lying if I ever told you that. I don't look at myself in the mirror and go, Aaron, what are you doing? Is this, are you on the right path? Is this the right decision, And X, Y, and Z? But you have to have courage. You have to have courage. Your worth, your self-worth and your self-ability is determined only by you. And if you don't think you can do it, don't rely on somebody else to tell you that you can do it. Only you can. Your network serves to better that courage of conviction. So I, I totally agree with the, the need to stretch and try new things and ask those questions and be insatiably curious. Because without that, well, you're just boring. Don't be boring.
0: Our listeners are going to want to reach out to you. You've said, hey, reach out, ask me questions, come work for me. I can be a mentor, et cetera. From both an email perspective and from either LinkedIn or Twitter, how do our listeners find you?
1: Absolutely. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn at my name, Aaron Miri, or my Twitter handle. It's Aaron Miri, all one word, A-A-R-O-N-M-I-R-I. Um, or just shoot me an email. It's also my name, aaronmiri at gmail.com. I know it's pretty simple, but I like folks to get a hold of me very easily. Um, happy to respond and happy to help guide and, and ask, answer questions or put you in one, touch with wonderful people. You know, Sarah, you are a wonderful mentor to, to your. Uh, you know, I call them students, your pupils, but really your team, your entire community, and uh, Southern California, I know they're blessed to have you. And there's others out there that you know we can always help connect people with um, to really answer all kinds of questions.
0: Aaron, it's always a great uh, honor to have time with you and, and speak with you. And thank you for being on our show today. And I look forward to future conversations.
1: Really appreciate it. Have a great one. Thank you.
0: You too. Thank you for listening to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. Special thanks to Esteban Parano, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us to produce our podcast series.